Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we're joined by free thinker, activist, and mycologist, Dr. Patricia Kashian. Dr. Kashian received a BA in biology with a concentration in environmental studies in 2013 from Wheaton College in Massachusetts. In August 2020, she defended her PhD in forest pathology and mycology from SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. She is broadly trained in the taxonomy of macro and microfungi with considerable field experience in the neotropics. Currently, she is working as a postdoctoral researcher in the AIM lab at Purdue University, where she is serving as curator of fungi at the Arthur Fungarium and Kreeble Herbarium. Beyond the more traditional scientific work, Dr. Kashian also works in the realms like the philosophy of science, feminist bioscience, ecofeminism, and queer theory, exploring how mycology and other scientific disciplines are situated in and informed by our socio-political landscape. She is also a founding member of the International Congress of Armenian Mycologists, a research organization comprised of ethnically Armenian mycologists who seek to simultaneously advance mycological science and Armenian sovereignty and liberation. Dr. Kashian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, it is definitely an honor to speak with you, not only for your academic work, but also for the amazing thoughts that you put together uh, in that paper, Mycology as a Queer Science, and all the other work you do exploring how mycology and science relate to the geopolitical landscape. It's really amazing stuff. So I'm really excited to talk with you about all this. Oh, thanks so much. <laughs> and before we dive in, though, I am really curious how you got your start you know, connecting with nature, exploring the field of mycology, you know, what were some of those life events that kind of led you to the path that you're on now? So I have always been someone who spent a lot of times outdoors. And I definitely thank my parents for that sort of style of parenting that allowed me to have a lot of unstructured play in the woods. Um, I definitely think that that was really foundational to me as a child sort of becoming intimate with landscapes. And I was always really drawn to organisms that sort of other people maybe were not so comfortable around. So I was really into like herps and, you know, snapping turtles and snakes. I We had a, a stream that ran through our yard and fed into this wetlands behind our house. This is just a little north of New York City in Putnam County. And um, I spent just a lot of time like wandering around in those swampy areas and I just fell in love with all things, you know, sort of slimy and, and unusual. So it's been a lifelong <laughs> journey. I got first formally introduced to mycology as an undergrad. Actually, I took a semester off from college at Wheaton because I wasn't really sure what I was doing. I started out pre-med and that was not quite a right, the right fit for me. Um, I knew I wanted to be a biologist, but I just didn't quite know what, what, what path would look like. Right. And I took a semester off and I attended a naturalist course um, through Cornell Cooperative Extension. And there I met Dr. George Hudler, who was a 
um, I think he's now retired, but he was a mycologist at Cornell for a long time. He wrote the book Magical Mushrooms, Mischievous Molds, amongst other things. And he he was the first mycologist that I met, and he taught me about this interesting world of fungi. So going back to Wheaton after that, I just tried to find any excuse to do like a research project on them or write a, like a review paper for whatever class. There wasn't like a mycology class at Wheaton, but I tried to like take cl- organismal biology classes and just get in proximity to fungi somehow. And then there was sort of a, I guess, a firm career affirming experience where I went, took a tropical biology class and we went down to Costa Rica to La Selva Biological Station, which is a pretty famous research station in northeastern Costa Rica in the rainforest. And there I did, um, we were supposed to do our own research projects on different organisms there, and I wanted to do mine on fungi. And there was a small little library at the biological station that we were instructed to use to like inform our, our project. And when I checked out the library, there wasn't like a single reference to fungi. In the, I mean, it wasn't a large library, but still I was like pretty shocked because this is like a world-renowned research station. And everywhere you look in this rainforest in Costa Rica, you could see these like fungi. So I was just surprised that they would be overlooked by even scientists. So I've since learned that there are a lot of people doing a lot of awesome work in mycology, but at the time it felt like, you know, nothing, no one knew anything. I just didn't, I didn't know where to look. So that was sort of the beginning of me knowing that like I wanted to be one of those people who contributed towards understanding this whole group of organisms. Pretty transformational moments in there. And I definitely am going to have to check out Magical Mushrooms and Mischievous Molds because I had never heard about that one. And it sounds like an absolute masterpiece. (laughs) Yes, it's great. I recommend it. I, I do cite it a little bit, like I pulled a few references um, in this paper that I wrote from from that book, but kind of George Hudler explores sort of the interface of humans and fungi, like pivotal historical moments where fungi and humans have collided. So like penicillin or claviceps purpurea, the, the ergot and th- you know things like that. So it's great. And you've definitely expanded on that work in examining, you know, cultural context of human society and how that affects our relationship and outlook on fungi. And I guess you do have a really powerful activist streak. You're someone who's very politically aware. At least this is my impression from kind of reading your work and and following what you do. You have a very strong and aware political sense. Now, was that kind of developing in parallel, you know, as you were exploring biology and you were discovering these enigmatic fungi and realizing, oh, I want to research this, was that kind of activism and that awareness around bigger social issues kind of brewing alongside that? So it was kind of natural for them to intertwine or did some of that come later? Thanks for asking that. Um, Yeah, I, I I do consider myself an activist. I've actually been pretty politically engaged since I was a young person. Um, mm. I remember the first protest I attended, I was 13 and it was against like violence in uh, Myanmar slash Burma. Now I would actually struggle to articulate the exact situation that I was protesting, but I just was very concerned with human, human rights issues um, around the world since I was a, a child. Um, I credit some of that towards my, again, also my parents and my grandparents uh, have a long history of 
civil rights activism and just sort of general consciousness for you know our our neighbors i think that i think they both complement each other I think they kind of grew in parallel, not necessarily directly one, you know, informing the other until a little bit later in life. I think that I realized that these things needed to be done together in grad school when I realized that a lot of scientists don't necessarily believe that they are political actors. My personal belief is that everyone is a political actor. There's no such thing as being apolitical. It's either you either you care or not. You can you can be apathetic or not, but um, there's no such thing as actually not, you know, everyone participates in the in the culture, right? And and that culture right. is either doing harm or trying to correct harm. So I've noticed that a lot of scientists didn't believe that they should be political and I thought that that was sort of um, a mistake. Right. So I I then kind of realized that I think you need to, in order to be a responsible scientist, you should have, and it doesn't mean you have to t- pick up the mantle on every single issue, but you need to have some sort of awareness as to how your, um, the institutions in which you participate in, the kind of broader discourse in which you participate in, all of that has meaning beyond yourself. And I think it's like incumbent upon you as a researcher to at least reflect on that and be knowledgeable about how, in what way you're engaging with these forces. Well, I think that was elucidated beautifully. And of course, probably not conscious at all as you're going along, you're kind of, this is just who you are. You know, you're having this political awareness, you're also studying Mm -hmm. these organisms. But yes, I think the marriage of them is really important. And for some reason, especially fungi seem to be this vector for examining other social issues. I mean, there are, these are analogies that you go much deeper into, into your work, but there's the idea, the idea of how mushroom or how fungi challenge the idea of gender. They challenge, I mean, they challenge so many biological norms that we've kind of staked a lot of our human narrative on top of that they become this amazing tool to examine and kind of question some of that, peel up the edges around it. Uh, So yeah, I I love that you've teased apart those ideas. And then when you're talking about science and kind of this greater political awareness, something hugely important, my wife always says, when you're not saying something, that is saying something. Mm -hmm. So no matter what, you're involved in this discourse. I think that's a really important idea. But I guess to kick us off here, tell us a little bit about, and this is, you know, a massive topic, but a little bit about the backdrop of modern science. You know, the the paper that we're going to be pulling a lot from here, I'm sure, is that seminal work you I referenced earlier, Mycology as a Queer Science. And I just want to start getting into the groundwork you lay out in that paper because it's really powerful stuff. And I think that's a great place to start is kind of the foundations of our modern scientific system and you know how it kind of takes on the viewpoint that it does and really you know how we got to where we are in terms of the establishment capital s science okay so i I do in this paper try to disentangle like or at least separate you know science as a methodology a methodology and then science as an institution and i think that that 
distinction is important because like ideally science is this equal opportunity investigative methodological tool right science is something that anyone can conduct it's a set series of steps essentially that you um, employ to like ask certain questions try to reveal certain answers and then communicate those findings and it really doesn't have an agenda. It doesn't have a, a circumstance in which it like works better than others, right? It's just, it just is a tool, right? And ever, anyone can use it. Anyone can participate in it. But right. we know that as an institution, science kind of carries a lot of different baggage that I think as a tool, it, it goes beyond the use of it as a tool, but it, it, it becomes this collection of information, right? So like what's really cool and awesome about science is it, it is this sort of collective in incrementalism like all scientists are sort of toiling away making their small usually fairly small discoveries when you think about like what is contained in an individual paper the average like scientific publication as like it's a small amount of information usually right but the beauty of it is that every if everyone's making these small contributions it can lead to really enormous breaths of like understanding. And I think that that is, I, that's partly why I like being a scientist. I think that kind of commu the community, the community element of science is something that I like as like humans trying to figure out the world around us. I think that that's really cool. But I think that the strength of science can also sort of be its weakness, right? We have these very direct linear sort of probes that we send out into the world around us. And we, from those probes can excavate these bits of information that are very clean and very tidy and standardized. But I think that it can also get us to this point where we're basically in expect or require that everything that we know or everything that we define as truth has to be, um, it has to come by that particular way of knowing. And then that starts to um, shape, that's where you start to transition from like a, a tool into Sort of an institution, right? If you if a truth can only be determined by this particular way of knowing, that inherently excludes other ways of knowing, and then you get into defining what is worth, what knowledge is acceptable and what's deemed unacceptable, and what is, um, I guess, good knowledge or good information with bad information or not not real information, but what's a emotional or what is illogical, what is irrational, and all of those things. Um, and that's sort of where this sort of duality starts to emerge of like science is knowing things in certain ways and everything else is unknowable or or not real. And then when you couple that with other mechanisms of power, like social structures, then you get like around gender, around race, queerness, et cetera, ableism, then you start to, that's where things get a little bit I guess dangerous, right? You can start using that 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 um, duality for harm. So I think that I really do want to emphasize also that as a scientist, I love science, but I also want to be science critical, right? I'm science positive but science critical at the same time. And most of my critique is directed at the institution or the normalization of certain, like or in the codification, I guess, of certain ways of knowing to the exclusion of other ways of knowing. And I do also want to differentiate between pseudoscience and alternative ways of knowing, because definitely there is pseudoscience is like when you kind of assert that you're using the scientific method to get certain information, but you're not. And that's like, you know, that can be manipulative and bad and, and dishonest. 
But alternative ways of knowing are, are systems that operate entirely. They're not claiming to be science. And so therefore, I don't know that they need to be scrutinized in, as if they are attempting to be science and just failing to be science. Um, in fact, I don't think they should. So like, for, for example, even if you just say you're, you have a feeling like I feel sad, even if that can't be quantified in any way, or you just believe that you don't feel sad anymore, um, <laughs> right? That's just kind of, that's a, just a person, a quick illustration of like, that but there's other more complex illustrations of that as well but i don't want to ramble too much well no i mean this is such a huge topic you know i, I right when i asked the question i thought i'm asking her about the history of science i mean does it get much <laughs> bigger than that but i love yeah. how you're delineating the practice from the institution and how the practice is just one method of information gathering and mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to exclude other methods of information gathering and you know, that would be, I, I think that example of emotion works so well, but just intuitive gifts, people having an intuition mm -hmm. about something or other ways of deriving knowledge that even as I'm saying it, I think, oh, that's easy to dismiss. It's not, but you know, those are valid as well. And, and the veracity and the beauty of science is that it doesn't need to exclude those things, right? I mean, science can include it all. Right, right. And you can, and I think that um, I, I've just been in conversation with other scientists and they get very irritated and defensive. And I guess, I mean, maybe part of it is growing up or, or not growing up, but living right now in this current climate where there's a lot of like anti-science rhetoric that's very politically charged. And um, of course, like I would want, I, I think it's important to be able to like navigate that and defend science against those like anti-intellectual types of attacks. So I think maybe people are just guarded and maybe if, you know, the world wasn't like that right now, people would be more flexible and willing to have these conversations. But still, I can't tell you the number of people I've spoken to, both scientists or like people who kind of say like, I only endorse scientific things, who end up, I think, severely limiting their worldview and and even, I think, espousing kind of dangerous rhetoric around what is, and that, that are, it's inevitably, it's just like a thin veil between the, the rhetoric they're espousing and then like things like, I guess there's like gendered and racial ableist queer undertones to like what's okay and what's not okay. What's truth, what's permissible, what's what, what can come into our institutional space and what can't. You only have to peel back a few layers before you're in this space of like, where you're getting really dogmatic, actually. And yeah. I, think I think the scientists are some, some of the most staunch atheists, but then also at the same time, sometimes end up slipping into this space of like, of dogmatism themselves, which I think is contradictory. Well, and I think inevitably that kind of institutional dogmatism is what spawns critique and pseudoscience that may actually be invalid but it just is a natural response to kind of a dogmatic system that is excluding things based on it not being part of their accepted their accepted purview, their accepted form of knowledge gathering. There's going to be a natural backlash against that. But I, right. I just love this idea that science is a tool. It's the domain of all humanity. And you know, when I think of things like people with intuitive gifts or people that do believe in a more spiritual side of reality – you know, I think that when you really get down to it, that isn't directly opposed from science. You know, it might be that science, right. we just haven't developed the tools to probe using the scientific method to verify those things. 
Right. I absolutely agree with that. And I think that we certainly, what we can say for sure is that we haven't scientifically proven those things don't exist. <laughs> right. But, yes. you know, so that's for sure. And then the rest is like, I don't know. I think that it's not contradictory to be a scientist who has a spiritual philosophy. You know, another huge part of this paper that you really get into is this idea of objective truth. How is that different between the institution of science that we're talking about and the practice of science? You know, to practice the scientific method, does that rely on like a static, unchanging definition of truth versus for the institution of science? You know, it seems like that does rely on this set of inherent truths that you can't go against. You know, what what is the the difference there and and that concept of like a hard static truth? So, I mean, there's different schools of thought and now I'm going to like wish I remembered like the different philosophers and like what they said about each of these things, <laughs> but but you know, like there's the idea in science that you can't you can't um you can only say Okay, so there's like a famous example of like someone observing birds and all of the birds they see are, um, let's say, like gray. So then say they see a thousand gray birds and they're like, all birds are gray. And it, it only takes one pink bird to fly through the group to be like, you cannot, no longer is the statement all birds are gray true. But you might have seen maybe a thousand, maybe a million gray birds, right? So you can continually, a scientist could continually add positive information, right? To this database of like all that we know, but it only takes, and you could do that a million times, but it only takes one instance of that being untrue to sort of completely shift like the foundation of your claim. And that concept is, is I think really interesting because we can build and build and build, but then suddenly our frame shifts and um, paradigm shifts happen in science occasionally, right? And and then suddenly what we said was true is no longer true anymore. So I think that's a complicated idea to try to like communicate to non-scientists because it can erode confidence in science. So it's this really delicate mm. thing of like trying to talk about, okay, we know this to be a scientific fact, but we actually, it's really hard to, to say that it will always be true. And we, and as scientists, I think we, I think we get in trouble with the public um, a lot because there's this like, always like so many qualifying words are used and conditionals and like, well, under this circumstance, under this situation, when that happened, you know, this is the conclusion that maybe possibly, you know, we do like, we kind of have to talk like that because we know, or at least anyone who's like kind of interested in philosophy of science understands that like, you can't, I don't know that there are like really objective, like it could always change, right? Even some like, you know, really foundational theories and, like of the universe that various physicists have put forward have shifted. And um, I think (laughs) all this to say, like, I don't, I'm trying to like right now on the fly, think of an example of an objective truth. And I'm not sure that I, I can. Well, it might be a better question just to talk about what you're describing is how the practice of science actually doesn't rely on objective truths because reality is always shifting. What the collective human consciousness is aware of is, of course, always changing as time progresses and mm-hmm. the practice of science is going to reflect that. And so, you know, and it's just funny when you think about what we're discovering about microorganisms and how mm-hmm. individuals are made up on like that 
microorganismal level, how there is no one static being. It's all this collection. So it makes sense that science as a practice is kind of collections of observations and things that have borne out over time, over time, but it's always mm-hmm. subject to some big new discovery. Well, then how did the institution of science become a hegemonic structure by kind of trying to establish you know, this idea of this is truth and maybe whose viewpoint did that serve? And I guess what I'm trying to ask is like, who took up that mantle of we are now going to be the new arbiters of truth and take on as the voice of, you know, big ass science? How did that come together? Whose viewpoint is that furthering really? Okay, cool. Yeah. So I think that you can't, understand this story or this kind of historical trajectory without understanding the relationship between the state and and the institutional church of like Western Europe and thinking about how a lot of our academic structures are have been informed by the culture of Western Europe, particularly right. the intertwining of, of science with the powers of Western Europe in, in, you know, starting a few hundred years ago, right? where you had institutions that were the arbiters of, of knowledge. So you had societies like the Linnaean Society or the Royal Society, these different societies in Western Europe that were the home of, of science. They were like, you know, member, they had membership that um, only um, men were allowed to be part of. I would imagine they also had racial um, restrictions, but uh, to be honest, I'm not quite sure of like, exactly how that worked. But I know for sure that, for example, the Linnaean Society is about 230 years old, and it's only been for the last 100 years that women have been allowed to be members. Um, And even Mm. then, of course, there were disproportionately few women, and there were limits as to the roles that women could have in those spaces as well. But when you think about the, the value of those, the role of those societies were really important. You know, people would bring papers and, and observations that they put together and they would bring them to the society and they, they would all discuss those findings and then basically, you know, kind of put stamps on which papers were, you know, it was kind of like a peer review opportunity for peer review of, of scientific information there. And that's sort of where um, a lot of things became like, checked off as being valid or not. And um, it was where sort of, it was this reinforcing of scientific culture that happened there. And then, you know, whatever information could like pass through those societies would then, you know, be disseminated out through institutions. And um, I think that the culture of the people who are, you know, science is done by human beings who are affected by the culture that they're in. And at the time of Western Europe in the 1800s, you know, you have a a heteronormative society, you have a patriarchy, you have a white supremacist society, and you have a, a, a severely ableist society as well. And all of those things, all of those lenses through which any human was you know operating at the time are going to inevitably enter into the space of you know what becomes you know if someone makes a critique of of an organism because it doesn't seem as evolved as another so for example uh, Linnaeus himself you know referred to fungi as being the lower plants which in, in inherently means this sort of inferior status and also call them Rustici Paparini, which means like the poorest of peasants, mm. which is just like a weirdly <laughs> aggressive. Um, yeah, not, disrespectful, yeah, come so on. Disrespectful. Also just like, you know, there's the classism of like, oh, like a porous peasant, like, you know, he's trying to invoke something like, I don't know, like a, 
you know, someone who's not maybe able-bodied and like maybe he thinks is gross, you know, and cla- this, yeah. like, classist, you know, the whole I mean, what a horrible narrative to then project <laughs> onto this other organism. Exactly. Yeah. So, and it, I would not say that's scientific at all, but this is Linnaeus, the, you know, quote unquote, father of taxonomy saying, you know, projecting all these like negative human things that you would assign in a classist way against other human beings, assigning also that to this organism. So, I think that there's actually like there's a lot of instances like that throughout science where people because it was done by some like quote unquote forefather you know like you wouldn't think of it as being subjective but actually so there's so many instances of subjectivity that was just but it's been um I guess because their other contributions have been fairly remarkable of course like Linnaeus did make remarkable contributions to science you kind of like just kind of it goes like unexamined the so i think that there that happens a lot right where we you know someone or darwin i mean darwin said all the like a lot of racist stuff a lot of very sexist and like it just it's not it of course that's going to enter into his analysis of other organisms there there's just no way it doesn't um and in fact i think you know i there's well I, I think I'll stop myself there. I don't want to go too, too far. Well, you know, it's something that's so critical to be cognizant of because while I'm a big believer that we can't always look at our modern moral lens into the past because that's part of human evolution. Sure. Our moral development is kind of a time linear thing. And yes, there's so many things now we find repugnant, but that's so important to remember that there were what we now know are morally reprehensible assumptions, different qualities within the people that were kind of setting the foundation for this institutional discipline that then, of course, we have to be mindful of where that is still showing up. You know, if that's at the foundation of these different societies that then scan into universities and professional practice, you know, how deeply is that embedded? Where? How can we change that? So just reading your paper, of course, it opens your mind to things that are, when you hear it, when you just lay that out intuitively, you know, yeah, of course that's true. Mm -hmm, Of course, these mm -hmm. people would believe these things of their time, and then that would be reflected in institutions they set up, assumptions they make. Uh, So then you need to kind of build that into your model of how you even look at modern day institutions is is where it's uh, still showing up. And so that's something that's really, really important. And an interesting thing with that is you make a connection in the book between that kind of institution we're laying out that was getting formalized and even the church. These two forces that we think of as kind of always diametrically opposed, but that were birthed out of very much the same socio-political landscape that have kind of the, the institutional controls end up being seized by very much kind of the same people, uh, socioeconomically and politically. Yes. So I'll just circling back a little bit. Like, yeah, I think the point is not to say like, oh, Darwin should be, uh, you know, he's canceled or whatever. Right. But it's not it's the point is to be like, well, okay, yes, um, he said these things. So as you mentioned, right, where do they pop up now? Because we can't change who he was as a person, but we can interrogate maybe some foundational, uh, you know, truths, quote unquote, that he asserted and, and, and that have been indoctrinated into like our thought. And what I agree with how you summarize that. So thanks for that summary, you know, so regarding institutional, so again, with Christianity, um, 
I also am mostly talking about like sort of this institutional form of Christianity because it is right. important to mention that not all Christians live in the West and or actually, in fact, it's technically, you know, wasn't, you know, didn't start here. Yeah, yeah. an Eastern religion. And then there's, and I think that it's more about how the massive power structures have been built under the, you know, sort of almost the guise of Christianity that I, I, am, I am more in critique of. So I, you know, I, there were a number of scientists who were, actually pretty loyal to the church. I gave a few examples in the paper, Descartes, Euler, Newton, for just a few famous people. But they they were known to also like take in, you know, to to be loyal to the church in their sort sort of like these supposedly objective pursuits of knowledge. So they there were certain things that they wouldn't challenge um, because of their affiliation with the the what was deemed acceptable by the church. So I think that there is this sort of, you're right, that in, in some cases there have been these really powerful, I guess, collisions between science um, and the church. So like, you know, heliocentrism or evolution are two really big examples. But I, I think that there are also a number of ways in which both institutional science and institutional Christianity in particular have reinforced particular norms. Um, and those norms come up a lot with, I think this gets a little bit abstract, but in talking about like agriculture. So in this paper, I kind of talk about how the spread of large scale agriculture also interact with science and Christianity and scientific discoveries sort of enable these new and often ecologically harmful manipulations of lands and uh, like the land and with crops. And this sort of mirrored these like sort of Christian domestic concepts around uh, marital structure and kind of linked it with agriculture. And in the, in the paper, my co-author and I, who actually I, I do want to, I feel a little guilty that I haven't mentioned her name yet, but Hosmik Jalakian is my good, good friend and co-author on this paper. But she, so she actually came up with this word agroheterosexuality, which is this idea of like connecting agriculture and like sexual organization, like heteronormative sexual organization around families and around like seeding of the field of fields and kind of this full, this idea that like progress is linked with this like very linear kind of idea of reproduction. Um, and this, this concept is, it is a bit abstract. It's kind of, I think I do a better job in of laying it out in the paper, but this is also discussed by this person, Rachel Stein, which is a chapter in the book on um, queer ecologies which is a great collection of essays around queer ecology. And there she talks about how Christian thinkers compared human sexual actions to planting a field and only those activities that corresponded to seeding mm. or procreation were ac accepted as natural and other activities that like impeded or ignored reproduction, whether they were performed with members of the same or opposite sex were forbidden as against nature. And that's a, that's a quote from her. Um, and so like the body basically that would perform this forbidden action against itself is then sort of written off as this deviant, offensive and um, forbidden body. Right. And that's sort of this, like the nexus of where we rest, like this uh, queer sexuality and queer ecology, this idea that 
we would recreate or attempt to yeah. recreate our own structures in of culture in like the natural world around us and seek to elevate those structures that we deemed acceptable based on their analogy to like our own sort of moral morality or sense of, you know, I guess sort of some deep seated sense of like how we should be. Well, and it's very circular, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they wanted a heteronormative society. So then they applied that analogy to a field, which as we know now is full of fungal actors that don't care about your heteronormative outlook and then say, oh, well, that field and its process of procreation and seed, we're now going to use that as the analogy for what humans should be doing. I mean, what a circular logic to kind of reinforce yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. And Anna Singh, um, she's an anthropologist and she wrote a few, she's written a few works on, related to fungi. She's written, a lot of people are talking about her book, uh, Mushroom at the, Mushrooms at the End of the World, which I recommend. Yeah. And also an essay, Mushrooms as Companion Species, which is really great. Um, and she talks about this as well. Like the, this is, uh, she talks about how like when agriculture intensified and it, it became this like standard for modernity and progress. And then when fungi interrupted that, because particularly with monocultures, their monocultures are really vulnerable to disruption by pathogens because they're stripped bare of their natural ecologies and just more at risk. Um, and that sort of solidified fungi as this like enemy to this those ideas of modernity and progress because they were like what was standing in the way of this like massive really successful you know monocrop that we saw our own or like humans saw their own sort of values within so it i think that that there's this idea of like progress and forward movement and productivity and growth it's always constantly scaling up scaling up scaling up that's a, a capitalistic drive and i think both queerphobic and this like mycophobic discourse like really kind of throws a wrench in the gears yeah yes it does certainly throw a wrench in the gears and you realize you know the biological reality of the nature of human sexuality and the nature of fungal organisms didn't fit that model so of course they were excluded and shoved to the side. And so, yeah, that that's the heart of the paper is, and I think that actual one topic displays beautifully how it's kind of this like hetero agro machine where science, institutional science, institutional Christianity are kind of coming together to reinforce this mindset birthed out of a fabric of Western European thought largely dominated by Caucasian people, by males, the society very much where males were kind of at the front. So that's kind of, and again, this doesn't have to be something that was like conscious or nefarious. That's just the right. reality of where it was birthed out of. Mm -hmm. So when we know that we can know, wow, that's not really including every perspective. And that can't be, you know, the scope of reality because it's coming from kind of one conglomerated mindset of these different institutions run by certain people that just happened to then project itself all over the world to become kind of it, it more, yeah. more and more insidious, right? The more right. this kind of mindset infects everything, the more insidious it becomes because of the bigger reach and everything else. So then to tie it together, you just, you know, brought up that relationship between mycophobia and queerphobia. You know, what is, just to lay out another definition, what is the definition of queer, just so we're all familiar with kind of what we're talking about here? Yeah, sure. So, um, the word queer used to be used like negatively 
you know, as almost as a slur, right? Not almost as a slur. And to describe like, not, you know, homosexual behavior. I mean, of course, it's sometimes used, I think, I feel like in England, maybe it's not so much a slur, it just describes something that's weird, right? Oh, that's a queer, like, I don't know. I'm not really sure. I'll, but it's been in the United States, for sure, it was used as a slur. And now people have sort of reclaimed that and, and self-identify as queer. And it, it's used more of a fluid, more sort of like broad term to encompass behaviors and and identities that gay and lesbian don't quite encompass. So, I mean, you can be, some people like will identify as multiple things. Like I'm, you know, uh, like I'm bisexual. So I I go, I would identify either as bi or as queer and uh, both are fine. Queer is sort of like a slightly more fluid and non-specific way to enveloping like behavior and identity outside of heteronormativity and it became it became popular again it was reclaimed during like aids political activism in the 80s and 90s it started to enter academic thought or in following um feminist studies and gay and lesbian studies as well so it became like queer theory became a kind of academic discipline or you know philosophical discipline around then, around the 80s and 90s. And essentially queer theory explores these dichotomies of normative versus deviant, usually with regards to sexuality and systems that interact with sexuality. And that can include like sexuality itself, but also like race, nationality, other identities. And it sort of focuses on challenging these quote unquote like essential qualities of you know, basically the standard and expectation for romantic and sexual relationships. So, and similar to feminist and gay and lesbian theories, it also challenges like, you know, essential truths, you know, quote unquote, around gender and, you know, just basically anything relating to like human relations. Yeah, which again, are a lot of times birthed out of that similar institutional fabric we've we've kept referring to. You know, these same players that right. we all had in our head, we're talking about kind of big church and big science. Those are the same people kind of making the norms that then are subsequently now being challenged by queer theory. Right, right. And que- there's a, uh, the discipline of queer ecology is also, I think, fairly new. You know, maybe in the last couple decades, it's become more and more common to publish on. But basically, a queer ecology is this intervention that targets exactly kind of what you were just saying, this like the institutionalization of heteronormative modes of scientific thought. So it, it challenges like this is some like there's a lot of assumptions made in science that like that homosexuality is an aberration or homosexuality is sort of this perversion and, and it's rare and it's like maybe specific to humans or, you know, whatever. And we now, now we like, that's just one example of like, we now actually know that, that homosexuality is really common throughout the animal kingdom and has independently arisen many, many times. And in fact, there's all sorts of non-heteronormative dynamics between different organisms. Um, there's, you know, organisms that change their sexuality or, or um, there's organisms that display like behaviors that are kind of like inverted where you would expect it's more of a male role to do one thing and a female role to do the other. And that's all switched around. So there's just like constantly all these examples as, as to how like 
the animal kingdom is not nearly as heteronormative as we maybe we would have the science had previously asserted and the argument there is that if there wasn't if uh, homophobia wasn't a thing ever then maybe we would never have believed that homosexuality was rare in the animal kingdom in the first place yeah that would have informed observations differently yeah yeah, so yeah, that queer theory sort of like goes, it's kind of this idea of deconstruction, right? You're trying to deconstruct this idea of like that there are, are these inherent stable truths and sort of call into question the language that people use in the formation of these truths and sort of push the boundaries of concepts that have become deeply embedded in society and then try to deconstruct those concepts and see like what does that reveal and like where do are those concepts there because they serve us or or not you know the upstart study of mycology the science of looking at these fungal organisms that like we said were pushed to the side you know Flanaeus wanted to call them peasants whatever whatever they were ascribed mm-hmm. they were certainly not part of big institutional orthodoxy and it would right. seem that then queer theory and then queer ecology, which I just love that concept of looking at ecologies through a different lens, specifically trying to not see everything as a heterosexual relationship, uh, would yeah mm-hmm. be a really important kind of blinder to take off. And that these concepts or these disciplines would find a natural ally then in studies of mycology. Yes. Yeah. So I, I definitely think that like, so one clear example of like fungi sort of being misunderstood and well pathologized right is the fact that most academic institutions that have a mycology lab or um, classes those labs are often housed most times in a a plant pathology department or sub-department or forest pathology even in my own degree at SUNY ESF which is like where I got my PhD and that's um, has one of the, the oldest mycology lab like running mycology i guess not lab but there's just like the um a long history of mycology at suny esf and it was um a school with like awesome environmental studies and still that you know my degree is in forest pathology and mycology and you know this idea that it kind of these departments are like they're nominally at least focused on the danger of fungi and that kind of sets this sort of the stage for no, like for the interaction where you kind of are from the jump describing fungi as being something that needs to be fought and controlled or, or eliminated. And if that's like the entry point into understanding them, of course, you know, a student entering the program is going to have this bias immediately that this, these organisms, this entire kingdom of life that occupies practically every conceivable niche and upon which we literally depend for to function as a body, a human body, um, you know, is, is a a pathogen. So I think that that's like a really good example of this framework that comes from this idea that fungi are, are oppositional to our, like our, like health and life. Yeah. And is that changing? I mean, even I've talked to people who are specifically studying you know, fungal pathogens, quote unquote, that hurt plants. And more and more, the response I'm getting from those scientists is, oh, well, I'm not calling to eliminate them. You know, they probably serve a critical Mm -hmm. role. So do you then see mycology as the science with an opportunity to aid things like queer ecology, to, to really expand the boundaries of our human perspective? 
Yes, I, I think that they're a really wonderful example of that. I mean, every day there's like new paper published as to some very intriguing, very ecologically significant role that a fungus or a group of fungi are playing in our, our bodies, like with just constantly new studies on our mycobiome or my, or the mycorrhizal fungi and, and their roles in forests and, you know, all these different symbiotic dynamics that fungi are involved in. We like are on a daily basis, practically learning about some other cool example of fungi being awesome. And I think that they've, I think that this like arc, right. Of coming starting from the bottom, now we're here kind of thing. Like fungi are like just perfectly, like they were completely disregarded and reviled. But now there's, I do think that there's a shift of people seeing them more positively, realizing that there, that there are these beings that are really dynamic and really important. And, and even, I think, just even if they're not directly important to humans, I'm seeing people just appreciate the fact that they're out there living their lives in these very interesting ecological ways. But, you know, I posted a photo on my Instagram yesterday of a rust fungus, um, which is a plant pathogen. And, you know, I got a comment from someone just being like, I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the photo was beautiful. Like, I thought the fungus structure was really almost looked like glass and I it has these nice, nice like orangey tones. I was like, it's, I thought it was like a work of art, but still like the reaction that I, a friend of mine had was that it, they were scared of it. And I just, I thought that was like a very, it's still a really pervasive microphobic feeling of people being like, ew, gross. Ah, that reactive thing is still really, really common. I mean, I encounter that all the time when I step outside of my mycology bubble right. and talk to people and people are like confused and like sort of scared. <laughs> when I tell them what I study or have this assumption that I'm just like in it for the psychedelics or something, which I'm like, well, I, of course, that, no, no critique of that, but just like the fact that it's just like very, very, these one dimensional like perceptions, you know. And it's easy to then find a parallel to that in one dimensional perceptions of, you know, kind of a heteronormative baseline, the perception of any kind of queer sexuality. Right. Is right, you'd have right. the same kind of one dimensional analysis, maybe a little bit of fear, but you know, that it, mm -hmm. you just can't get away from how good this analogy is. <laughs> I know, I think so too. But yeah, so the the kind of of course there are fungi that are pathogenic that do harm our, you know, beloved agricultural plants like coffee and chocolate. And then there's like fungi that can cause disease. You know, but the fact is that most fungi do not fill those roles at all. And, and many of them, in fact, are really, really important to like life as we know it. And the premise of any kind of ism, right, race, sex, gender, ableism, all that stuff is you're mapping. It's to map a singular quality onto an entire group of people. Right. And um, I think that, you know, I don't think it's trivial to to make this comparison to a group of organisms because of where we are right now with where capitalism has brought us, right? Which is to the brink of ecological collapse. And all of these things are really, really intertwined. So it's not just this academic exercise of like, of making this analogy, right? But it's, I think it's a really important way to like, we need to change how we see other organisms. We need to change how we relate as humans relate to non-humans. And I think we need to, that will involve upending all of these systems of power. I think that it goes beyond just sort of 
thinking about this stuff, but really, really interrogating how we, the, like the, this premises drive that I think all human beings have towards one group of things or another. And I think that that, you know, we are faced with a crisis of ecological crisis. And, and it, it, I think it really will involve us really having to fundamentally adjust how we as humans interact with the earth. Yeah. And on this larger arc, you know, I think it's clear that it needs to crack kind of the, I keep using the word, but that heteronormative Western European dominant cultural, political, economic mode that much mm-hmm. of the world abides by. Now, not all the world does. You know, I'm also speaking from a position where I am very much submerged in that world. So I kind of see, oh, this is the predominant force everywhere. But luckily, it's not. So people help us by giving us perspectives and showing us some of these shortcomings. But yeah, and I think of this greater arc you're laying out, it seems really obvious that that whole modality is going to have to sh- shift. I think it is no mistake that in, you know, when you think of long time, these events are pretty closely linked in the era of much more acceptance of queer sexuality, much more realization and kind of normalizing of queerness. I don't know if that's a inherent contradiction, the normalizing of queerness. Um, but yeah, the, uh, much more acceptance around queer sexuality and the acceptance of mycology, who, as you say in the paper, were both kind of huddled in the margins uh, when that mm-hmm. Western patriarchal, that Western European patriarchal society was at its peak. I think it's no you know, coincidence that they're both emerging at the same time as we approach you know, imminent ecological disaster. It's finally like causing that calcified system we've been traveling in to crack open and we're finally starting to let these other perspectives flood in and i know that in some folks that does cause kind of a reflexive and this is kind of the interesting cultural and political dynamic where there is kind of this reflexive oh are you now you know saying that and this is just things i hear on the internet whatever but you know, are you now saying that being a white male from Western European society is bad? It's like, no, that's that's not the point. The whole point is there is more than that perspective that needs to be right. included if we're going to get anywhere. So I think basically think that's very much happening. I think there'll be some interesting adaptations by everyone involved, including people, and I'm speaking from that group, including people that are kind of members of that group we're talking about, this heteronormative mm-hmm. Western European person, a uh, Western European male, you know, there are mm-hmm. other perspectives that are needed. And so I think we're going through this process right now where that's changing. People are having to acclimate. And I see that, I see that very much happening. And I see mycology as a really integral part of that, where people like yourselves are able to make these connections, make these analogies, and really expand that perspective. Right. Wow. Yeah. I, I, that was really well put. I think it's really important that I know it can be uncomfortable to have your particular identity, whatever it may be like called out in, in various contexts. It's not a comfortable thing. It's not easy. It's embarrassing. It's, it's, it's humbling. Right. But I think that actually we really need people, particularly of those spaces to reject those spaces, right? I think mm-hmm. that that is not, I think that everyone has a really, has a role to play in, you know, challenging these dominant systems. And, and you know, if anything, it, you know, the work should not fall only on those who are most, you know, negatively impacted. But it, I think there's a lot of space for people who maybe would stand to benefit more than the average, you know, than 
a woman, a queer woman of color, for instance. But um, I think that, you know, it's just really important that everyone comes to the table and, you know, shows up to stand in solidarity with one another. And um, the process of becoming an activist is is definitely one of, of constant self-reflection. And, and, and it, that self-reflection can be really, really uncomfortable. The point is, though, that the world that we're all, you know, many of us are working towards is worth worth it. It's worth the discomfort and it's worth showing up for, you know, regardless of, of who you are. So Yes, and it's and the whole point is it's not exclusionary. So if you were the dominant whatever identity it was mm-hmm. in a certain paradigm, you should still want to shatter that paradigm because you then won't be excluded from the new one. The whole idea is <laughs> right. we can't we can't get the new one until the old one is is torn apart, even if that means, you know, a loss in whatever undue kind of immoral status. <laughs> That was granted, yeah. right? And yes, yes. And I think alongside all this, the obvious—I mean, how can you forget? And of course, not speaking for these communities at all, I'm always very careful around this. But when you think about this huge resurgence in consciousness around indigenous culture, indigenous communities, I mean, you could put that in parallel to this emergence of different sexualities, this emergence of examining, you know, heretofore ignored organisms. All that is coming together. I think as a great sign that we are finally breaking apart that this yeah. is a huge part part and parcel that kind of colonial heteronormative western european male mindset you know that is finally I think finally starting to show cracks and come apart uh, but yes yeah, so that just adds another part of that is yes For again sure, the yeah. timing of that consciousness happens right alongside these other things Right. And I, I do cite a few indigenous thinkers that I was very inspired by, um, Dr. Robin Kimmerer, who actually served on my PhD committee, which I'm very honored Incredible. by. Wow. Yeah. And then uh, Tiakasin Ghost Horse, who is a member of the Lakota Nation and also is a professor at Yale. I cite him as well. So, I, yeah, I, I definitely think that in traditional ecological knowledge is is just a really inspirational realm and one that, you know, definitely is super super important in in this whole and i think as we move forward collectively as like a to try to shift our cultural values well and to add another piece into this you're famously your name is queendom fungi (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so tell us about that choice and maybe what that means about reclaiming like feminine power in the sphere of this institutional science we've been talking about yeah um I mean, yeah, so I guess I just sort of, it was just like a simple rejection of the term kingdom, which is, you know, the taxonomic ranking. It's, you know, now sort of, well, the ranks are changing. And sometimes some groups, depending on what you study, you might not even recognize the term kingdom anymore. But regardless, you know, the taxonomic kingdom is the rank kingdom, you know, then phylum, class order, family, genus, species. And I, so it was just sort of a, uh, a rejection of the sort of masculine domain and an assertion that I think just to me, like the feminine, there's something inherently feminine about fungi, inherently queer about fungi. And I wanted to sort of put that out as a, as a just as a rejection of, <laughs> of a masculine, more masculine assumption of a, this taxonomy. Well, and it's one of those obvious ones that when you see it, you can't look around it. You're like, yeah, of course, kingdom. Why do we use the word kingdom? Why does it have to be a male? You know, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's one of those easy ones to really see 
this undercurrent that again, it seems like things are changing, you know, as we've built up kind of this, these different institutions. And then I don't want anyone to think we're, you know, making a straw man or anything you've talked about, mm-hmm. they are evolving and changing, but the vestiges of kind of those original foundational values carry through in something as simple as that kingdom classification. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, this is a huge topic. I really encourage people to read your paper. These things are all laid out in a beautiful argument. You know, I'm still rereading it, getting new information out of it. And I think it's just this really important piece of the puzzle when it comes to examining perspectives and culture and, you know, how these things influence really every aspect of the human experience, whether it be a practice of science, whether it be spirituality, whether it be how we interact economically, you know, those influences are all inextricably linked. And I think it's really, a lot of people know now that, yeah, the white Western European hetero male is kind of the dominant force. But I think this really like explains why that's a, is the case in a way that kind of doesn't bash anyone, but just says, here's kind of the reality of how we are where we are. Yeah, I, I really encourage everyone to to read that paper. Um, and actually, where's the best place for people to find that work? Because now we talk so much um, about it. It is open access. So you can go to, um, I'll send you the link so you can maybe link it. But the, the journal that it was published in is called Catalyst, Feminism Theory and Technoscience. So it's on their website and it's um, you can download the PDF or you access it by the HTML. And I also have a ResearchGate profile, which is a kind of an account that a lot of academics, scientists use. And it's also on my ResearchGate profile. Are, are either of those? Yeah. And what's the reception been? Because obviously we're, we're wading through some really potentially polarizing and tricky topics. I mean, what's the reception <laughs> yeah. of that paper been? I think it's been pretty good. I've actually, I was really nervous because, right, I'm a scientist. I, that's, I've been trained in, in science. But I do also want to give another shout out to Dr. Robin Kimmerer because when I was putting this together, I really wanted it to be a chapter in my thesis. And, you know, my advisor and my committee members were like, I don't know, you know, like all your other stuff's on fungal taxonomy, like very, very clear, like hard science stuff. But I was like, but this is like really what I want to put in. So I, I, so I reached out to Dr. Kimmerer and I like asked her for advice. Like, I, you know, I was like, I've been so inspired by her work and she she studies also mosses and she teaches at ESF and she, but she also does, so she's a botanist, but she's also um, bringing constantly into the conversation, traditional ecological knowledge and critique of, of systemic power. Right. And um, she told me that she thought I should a hundred percent go for it, put it in my thesis. She just gave me a lot of courage and a lot of encouragement. And um, I just, that tipped the scales for me. I was like, you know what? I'm putting this out there. I feel like I, her validation was like the only uh, one that mattered to me. So, yeah. but, you know, she said that when, when you put yourself out, she did have this like kind of note of caution, which is that when you put yourself out there, people will critique your work even harder. Perhaps, you know, like she experienced that. She told me that she was noticed that, you know, her own science then became even more intensely critiqued when she had kind of, I guess, maybe, you know, the audacity to critique science herself. So it was this sort of like kind of warning that, you know, people might kind of want to tear this apart, I suppose. Um, 
So I definitely was nervous about that. And of course, you know, I'm sharing also information about my identity, which is vulnerable and perhaps risky. I guess I I don't know if I can get a job at a Catholic university, for example. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, So there is some vulnerability in that. But I have actually received a number of speaking invitations, um, most recently from the University of Michigan, from the University of Pittsburgh, and a few other universities, particularly by people who are teaching classes on the history of science and philosophy of science. So I think that this the University of Michigan talk was a departmental seminar for environmental or evolutionary biology and ecology, I believe the department was. So it's a squarely scientific department. Right. So I actually think that people, I think it's really resonating. I think that there are, I'm sure there are people who I haven't, who haven't said this to my face who think it's like, I don't know, whatever, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure, you know, probably like just not worth the time of scientists maybe, but then, but a lot of, I've had a lot of messages from usually from women and often other queer folks who are like, you know what, this, I'm a scientist and I needed to read this. Like this makes me feel valid as a scientist. So I, I think all, certainly all that feedback that I've received is well worth whatever criticism might be floating around out there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's brave. Right. And I think that's what Dr. Kimmer was preparing you for. It's like, it takes some bravery to question the very institution that you feel like you are a member of, but right. that's the way you refine and improve institutions is to question the very right. fundamental nature of them. And, you know, and that could apply to that scientific institution that applies to political institutions. I mean, what an incredibly important role, but it does require a lot of bravery. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I do think so. So thank, thanks for also recognizing that. <laughs> I see that and I see you and I appreciate you taking that step. And yes, I think it it could be easy. You know, I'm already hearing people responding to say, oh, this is, you know, some kind of woke, yada, yada, yada. Well, I can assure you it's incredibly grounded. And I think, I think it's really important to realize that these critiques of cultural narrative and perspective, even if, like I said, you are a hetero Western European male, they are valid. And it's not anyone just trying to do this for any kind of PC points or to show how woke they are. You know, I've heard all those different critiques before, and I'm sure there's some that Mm -hmm. will still arise from this. But I think this is something actually really important that we have to look at. And there is so much legitimacy to picking apart these narratives and perspectives and how global society has been guided by because there was a colonial influence spreading these narratives. This is kind of like this issue. I don't want to call it a virus. I'm going to stay away from that. But <laughs> but but it is this kind of metastasized mm-hmm. perspective that needs to be seen and understood. And whether you want to call it calling out or calling in, you know, it needs to be understood and addressed. And if nothing else, you have to remain cognizant of it to see the limitations of it like anything else to see how it limits us yes i think that's also a great way to put it and i i do think i really try not to attack individuals like right and it's never really about individuals none of these things like and that's true and i mean but i do think i do see more of that reactive like tack of like individualizing certain problems and people really lash you know using individuals as like kind of a vessel for like dumping their anger on systemic issues. And I, I don't think that that is, I mean, I get why it happens. And I was going to say, I can kind of relate when you see where we're at systemically, it's easy uh-huh. to kind of assign blame. Yeah. 
it is easy to assign blame. And I, I mean, I've been guilty of it too. Like I've been guilty of like, you know, really localizing problems into human beings. And I, I, I mean, I think we all do that a little bit, but I, I, it is something I'm trying to be conscious of. In, in the last year in particular, I've kind of had a shift where I'm like, you know, these are systemic problems and people, we're all harmed by them to some extent. And um, I think that that, particularly when it, when it comes to ecological collapse, like this is, this really, we really need to everyone. <laughs> you know, unless you're a billionaire who's going to jet off some or build some sort of like orb to insulate yourself from, <laughs> like, I don't, we're all, we're all really in this together. Well, and then you can be, you know, alone in your orb as everything's falling apart. <laughs> and at that point, what's the point of being here? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that point. It helps everyone, even if you think you are, you know, at the trough of some unfair system, mm -hmm. it, it's not really serving you. So mm -hmm. we really need to take the time to kind of dismantle, examine, and then reassemble better. Yeah, I agree. Well, then we've really hit on this topic. I do want to at least mention a little bit. I don't want to take all your time, but a little bit about you know, the Congress of Armenian Mycologists, because that's really vivid and sounds really interesting. And then maybe leave us a little bit with what your research into fungal organisms has been. And obviously, we'll keep it pretty abbreviated. But yeah, what what is the Congress of Armenian Mycologists? Cool. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for asking about that. Um, so I'm a co-founder of this group. Um, it's basically Armenia. Um, just I'll just do a quick little... <laughs> fast facts about Armenia, but Armenia yeah. is a, a really small country. Um, there's only about 3 million people living in Armenia and it's located in West Asia. It, it borders Iran and also Turkey and Azerbaijan. And Armenia, I, so I'm an Armenian person on my dad's side and um, Armenia has been around for thousands of years. It's a really ancient society, civilization. But sadly, there have been there's been a genocide against Armenian people and just a constant sort of onslaught of colonial colonialization and ethnic cleansing events perpetrated mostly by the Ottoman Empire and now modern day Turkey and their kind of brother state, Azerbaijan. Um, so unfortunately, there was just a war that happened in the fall where Azerbaijan claimed ancestral indigenous ancestral Armenian land as their own. And it's it's very, it's a kind of a complicated state of affairs um, involving border disputes following like the collapse of the Soviet Union, et cetera. So I won't get into all of that, but um, Armenia is in jeopardy because the two states on either side, Turkey and Azerbaijan have, there are government officials with the stated mission of like wiping Armenia off the map. Um, so it's a very stressful situation, particularly for those living there, but also for people living in the diaspora like myself. Um, the war kind of brought up a lot of like generational trauma for people and a lot of pain of feeling misunderstood and, and feeling like no one in the world cares. So sort of because of that, me and a dear friend of mine, Claudia Viktorov, she's a mycologist as well. She's also Armenian. And then um, a few of our other, we have um, another Armenian friend at UC Riverside, Tanya Kerbasoyan, the three of us, and then Tanya invited our friend Arik. Um, so there's four Armenians who got together, basically, we're all mycologists, and we all wanted to basically leverage our skills as scientists to advocate for Armenia, because we couldn't, 
we didn't have enough time to do all of our activism work and keep our jobs. <laughs> so we decided like the idea was to sort of combine them and use kind of going off of a lot of themes in this paper, right, which is like anti-colonial indigenous liberation efforts, basically using uh, recognizing the connection between fungal and all general biodiversity and indigenous sovereignty and, and noting that they're linked, that biodiversity thrives when like humans who've ancestrally tended to this land also thrive. So yes, that's sort of like the underpinning principle. And our goal, it's new, you know, we just formed in uh, October or November, but our goal is to basically collaborate with Armenians living in Armenia, doing mycology and apply for, basically use our kind of access as People, citizens of the U.S. to like more funds, more grants and, and facilities and basically collaborate, send resources and um, work with Armenian mycologists to um, put generate more species descriptions, uh, maybe document rare and, and threatened species, conduct ecological research there and just sort of help put Armenia more on the map when it comes to science and um, also incentivize Armenians, young, like new Armenian scientists. We would like, you know, do some mentoring and then also sort of incentivize them staying in Armenia instead of leaving the country to go to like Europe or the U S for, um, for grad school, um, which is a, a kind of a constant thing that something that threatens, you know, Armenia's own capacity for conducting research. So mm. it's kind of, it's inherently a political and social endeavor, but it's one that uses, again, uses fungi as sort of this like vector for that. Well, and showing how scientists can be very effective political actors, even if it's not getting into, you know, the direct sphere of going to a Senate or diet hall you know, mm-hmm, but, but mm-hmm. by providing a scientific narrative and scientific information and just the the foundational impetus to engage in this practice somehow affects culture and changes. Polit- it's, yeah, that's a really, really inspiring story. And also, I think by this example where you said it references a lot of the topics we've been talking about, I mean, you could say Turkey is kind of a satellite. Obviously, there's we're getting into like really deep historical relationships, but you could say it's a satellite of like Western European heteronormative culture, or maybe it's kind of this issue that sprung up across time where you get these patriarchal, like heteronormative, extremely overbearing cultures that end up taking up all spheres, science, spiritual, and driving things in the wrong direction. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a really, I'm, really interested that you pulled out that point particularly because one thing that's been hard to um, talk about in relation to like Armenian advocacy here in the U S is that people keep applying these American narratives to the dynamics there. And it's made it really challenging to, you know, people are, I think people that I know well, who are really well intended have maybe not been comfortable critiquing Turkey because they perceive it as a non-white Muslim country. And therefore like you don't want to be perceived as Islamophobic, which of course, you know, I reject Islamophobia, but it's like, but that historical context doesn't really apply in this with regards to Armenia and Turkey, because although Armenia is a predominantly Christian nation, you know, it was, you know, only about a hundred years ago, a genocide against Armenians. So it's just not, it doesn't really like, that's not the lens. The American lens is not really appropriate here. So, and I think that also there's, there's something sort of full circle, like 
um, maybe racist or, you know, I don't know, but just this idea that like, that if you're perpetuating violence, if a state is perpetuating violence, it's only because they're informed by like the West. And I, I don't, it's almost like this idea that, you know, you can't criticize a country if they're not, I don't know, Western and white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that like, it's like, there's almost like this bigotry by lower standards almost. Um, mm. This idea that like you, you can't force them to be better because they're, they're not, I don't know. I, I'm having a hard time. Art- it's actually really nuanced. I'm having a little bit of trouble articulating exactly what I'm trying to say, but I, I mean, I, I'm like picking up what you're saying and okay. <laughs> you well, and you know, it's in my mind and I've kind of flirted with every part of the political spectrum at one point or another. But when you think about things like anarchy and this idea of statism and that, you know, the inherent problem really isn't necessarily about just a certain race and culture, which is so much of kind of how the lens through which we view things Mm-hmm. Is like you're saying, it's a cultural race-based thing that this is a white Western European problem. And we have these problems of colonialism. We have this and this and, you know, but other people don't really have that issue or it's different or we can't hold them to necessarily the standard that we're trying to hold this culture to in terms of improving. And like I said, it gets to this idea of like, it's not really a cultural thing. It's not really a race thing. Is it more of like, a state thing, you know, when you get yeah. these out of control structures of authority, is this just what happens no matter the culture? And of course, it, it almost seems like in the modern era of the past few thousand years, the modern state structure necessitates some kind of patriarchal hierarchy. And like, once you get into male dominated hierarchies, maybe as a society, you're going <laughs> to yeah. run into problems. Yeah, I think, okay, thank you. You're obviously... I don't know what you do for your day job, but you have a really good way of <laughs> explaining politics. So, um, yeah, that, that I think you, you nailed kind of the gist of where I was going because Turkey's Turkey's a scary state. <laughs> the state of Turkey, Erdogan, uh, the president is a terrifying person and their fascism is really going unchecked right now. Um, and we have to be willing to critique that everywhere. And like I said, it's why I've flirted with ideas of anarchy in the past, mm-hmm, like no mm-hmm. rulers and like, is this state really the problem? I mean, then you run into other issues of like, well, then who is the kind of standard weights and measures, objective group that's thinking of people's mm-hmm. well-being with the response being, well, that's not what the state does in the modern day anyway. Yeah, um, right, right, right. But yeah, we're coming, we're coming to some really core issues, I think, in the human experience that again, it's no mistake that people are having these conversations. I'm informed by people I'm hearing having these conversations. You're someone who's kind of knee deep in this in this realm, uh, and I think that's no mistake that you know this is a time where all all of that is coming into question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it makes me it makes me really hopeful. It does make me hopeful. Yeah, I'm glad that this is a mushroom podcast, and here we are talking about fascism. <laughs> <laughs> well, inevitably, we all know that fungi are to their core and opposed to fascism in every way, <laughs> shape or form. Yes, exactly. <laughs> pretty, pretty obvious. Well then, yeah, to, to kind of round us out with a little discussion of the fungi themselves, you know, do that brief overview of the research you've engaged in with fungi and mushrooms and maybe any future uh, plans you have in that realm. Okay. Um, so yeah, my PhD was focused on the, the taxonomy of lab which are a obligate group or a group of obligate parasites on a variety of arthropods, mostly insects. And I, for my, within my dissertation, I described about a dozen new species of those. So I'm, I just really love uh, looking for new species. Mostly, you know, I did focus on the bulls, but I'm 
that's what they're called for short. But I also am in general very um, passionate about macrofungal biodiversity. I also conducted some ecological research where I, I basically was looking at using labels as these indicators for biodiversity and um, like as a sort of using them as a proxy for res- measuring like the effect efficacy of restoration efforts and sort of looking at different patterns of evolution on insects and they're studying patterns of like how these different fungi arrived on different insect groups and looking for these evolutionary um, stories between the two. And then now I um, am as a postdoc at Purdue, I am working on rust fungi, which are a group of agricultural uh, pathogens. For that, I'm doing like a DNA barcoding project where I'm basically taking herbarium specimens and fungarium specimens and doing DNA extraction and generating DNA barcodes just um, for rapid identification of these rusts. So I'm trying to generating sequences of on over a thousand different fungi and um, with the help of a few uh, lab techs. And in general, I think I, I don't, you know, I'm not really sure where I'm going to go after Purdue. You know, the world of a postdoc is kind of transitory, but I do hope to end up with a lab and t- be a professor somewhere. I kind of like the idea of working at a liberal arts school, um, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I do think that this project with the Armenian group is something that will be really significant for me going forward. We do have the goal of generating like a book of Armenia, you know, common fungi of Armenia and just doing a lot of basic research there, doing, you know, taxonomic species exploration across taxa. So I, in the, in that case, I would, to be honest, I would, wouldn't mind stepping out of both the rust and the lavules and working on a nice big fruiting uh, fleshy fungi, <laughs> some of the more, you know, charismatic groups. Um, so yeah, I think, I mean, in general, if I could summarize it, I'm just a, you know, I'm a taxonomist and I, I'm very passionate about fungal biodiversity, like doing inventorying, and I just love doing field work whenever possible. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think you're the perfect person to blend this study of fungal organisms to how it informs human narratives and human politics and like the sometimes ineffable relationship that a lot of us see there that I, that's one of the things that gets me most excited about mushrooms and fungi is how it changes the stories we tell about ourselves, how we, you know, because humans are always looking for analogs in nature by which to like explain themselves and how things relate. And I think fungi are a direct challenge to a lot of what we've been talking about that were kind of the, the, the foundational kind of prompts we use to generate our own narratives. And this changes so much. So I'm really excited to see where you end up. And I think it'll be something somewhere really unique. Um, I mean, already your choice of organisms to study, the labules, super cryptic, <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> weird, like you're one of the only people I've ever heard of studying them. And then rusts, I mean, they're they're heavily studied, but what a crazy organism in terms I of- I know, they're so, yeah, they have like five different spore stages. They're really, really complicated. <laughs> yeah. So I think you're going to end up somewhere like really unique. <laughs> and so I'm really excited to to- follow the trajectory of your work and where is the best place for people to connect with you and follow what you're doing? I think ideally Twitter because I'm uh, my Instagram. I have it on private because I, I don't know. I'm happy to accept people like who I like know kind of, <laughs> but I, I, my Twitter is my more public. And if no one is on Twitter yet for mycology, there's like a crazy awesome 
Twitter mycology scene. I'm just dipping my toes into with academic, especially on the academic side. That's where you start finding all the different professors and yeah, postdocs and graduate researchers. Everyone's on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually I found my postdoc through Twitter. So my job posted uh, actually, well, Danny, because Danny Hailwater, as you mentioned earlier, who's like one of the few other level venologists, we were both briefly postdocs here at Purdue at the same time, which was like really fun because we got to like nerd out so hard for like two months <laughs> when we were both in the same place. So yeah, that was, that was good. But that, he posted the job on Twitter. So that's how I, <laughs> so yeah, it's a good place for a professional fungal networking. Yeah, so to think Purdue had like half of the world's labubiniologists uh, <laughs> in one place, yeah. that's really cool. Yeah, it was, that's fun, really it was cool. a fun time. <laughs> well, you know, we've covered every conceivable topic, I think, in this interview. <laughs> so I'll have you leave us with the three standard questions I like to ask all my guests. And I, I have a feeling it'll be kind of more mind-blowing, perspective-shifting answers, potentially. Um, but the first one is just a mushroom or a fungi that you love. And why? And this could be for eating, for looking at, for studying, okay. whatever it is, just a mushroom you love and why? A mushroom I love and why? Um, I love the whole genus and Entoloma, I guess the whole family even, but specifically Entoloma salmonium, which is also called like this, sometimes called the salmon unicorn Entoloma. It's just so beautiful. The colors are like these peachy pinks, and then they have these cute angular pink spores and the stipe is sort of the striated, like kind of candy cane-esque thing. And it just, oh, I love it. I just had to, while you were saying that, I had to Google it. And it is incredibly gorgeous. Yes, I, I think I'm falling in love with this mushroom already. <laughs> yeah, and it's much more, I mean, the photos probably don't even do it justice. Uh, and then the final question is, what is your kind of aspirational hope for our future with fungi and mushrooms you know what is the kind of best case scenario or best case vision for how humans can partner with fungal allies into the coming you know 10 50 100 years what does that look like you know again linking um gender and sexuality and race and ableism i think that i i, I hope that i can be a good ally and advocate to those different groups and i guess i i would like to I, I really enjoy teaching, so I would I would be really grateful if I could have a job that allows me to 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 transmit in like my enthusiasm for these organisms to new students. Um, I th I would be really grateful for that. More education, more inclusion, more appreciation, and maybe the practice of approaching a fungal relationship without thinking what it can do for me is a great great training for us mm -hmm. in every relationship you know if we can approach something like fungi and not make it about us hopefully we can do that more with other humans as well and just every other organism and gosh maybe we can move to the inanimate who knows what kind of reciprocal yeah. <laughs> world we can build if we just engage in that practice with fungi yeah i would love i would love to, i i hold myself to that challenge as well so <laughs> Dr. Kashian, Patty, thank you so much for coming on the Mushroom Hour. You waded into some really complicated topics and, and you know, you did a beautiful job kind of explaining unique perspectives and I think just ultra 
relevant topics when it comes to culture and politics and science. And, you know, I hope this uh, opens, opens a lot of mental pathways for people listening like it did for me. So thank you so much for coming on the Mushroom Hour and sharing your time with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. And um, I really enjoyed talking with you.